You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to talk to poet and music critic Hanif Abdurraqib about the music stories from 1980 he's chosen for the excellent Lost Notes podcast. And we'll talk with the director of Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president, about how the Carter administration changed how musicians interact with politicians. But first, we've got some new music to review. track called Letter to You on Sound Opinions, the title track from Bruce Springsteen's latest album. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band together for the 20th studio album in Springsteen's career. According to the myth that uh, Springsteen is crafting around this record, some fan handed him an acoustic guitar as he was exiting a stage door a few years (laughs) ago, and he took that guitar home and, hey, this looks like a nice guitar. And then a few years later, uh, wrote this entire album on that particular guitar. Well, not all of it. Three songs are from the ancient past. Right, but he's retooling them for this particular uh, record, and uh, it fits, Jim. Uh, we're going to discuss the themes of the record in a second, but uh, those older songs definitely play into uh, some of the major themes that he's exploring in Letter to You. Before we get into our review, which I'm sure everyone's anticipating, everybody knows how much we uh, both agree on Springsteen, ha, 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 This is a track from the new record, Last Man Standing. It's Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band from the Letter to You album on Sound Opinions. Faded pictures in an old scrapbook Faded pictures that somebody took When you were hard and young and proud Backed against the wall, running raw and loud Snakeskin vest and a sharkskin suit Cuban heels on your boots Kicking the band and side by side You take the crowd on their mystery ride Letter to You, the 20th album from... Um, a guy who also grew up in New Jersey, Mr. Bruce Springsteen. I'll start with the lyrics. I mean, I, I'm I'm listening to it uh, second, third, fourth times, and I'm like, I can't believe he's going there. <laughs> there are rivers. There are gravel roads. There's a house of a thousand guitars. There are trains. There are uh, women on fire. There are trains on fire. <laughs> uh, and there's a gypsy mystic. Now, now Greg... I mean, I, come on, man. I ain't never met a gypsy mystic. I think the proper phraseology would be a Romani mystic. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you know, what the <laughs> hell, man? Come on! Uh, and then, you know, it's the, the musically, it's the same problem I've always had. Bombast does not equal excitement. There is nothing new here for Springsteen. Uh, it is it is nostalgia. It is a, about making Springsteen great again for the people who have long uh, desired a return to 1970s Springsteen. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I just I take no pleasure in the least from this album. 
this is not intended to be a new Springsteen album so much as a comfort food for Springsteen fans, I think. What I'm hearing about this record, first of all, number one, the live album approach. He hasn't really done that since uh, about 1980. So I think that's a profound improvement. I personally thought the records he has made since about 1980 were overproduced. This is not. That organ, piano, sax, ornamenting, guitar, bass, drums, that's a sound Springsteen fans love, and he's returning to that sound. But there is new stuff on this record, because as much as he's using some of these cheesy tropes that he has always used, lyrically, he's also talking about some really poignant stuff. In that song, the title track, Letter to You, he says, I'm going to tell you everything I know to be true. What he's singing about in this record is, A, the, the fact that you know a lot of the people that he grew up with and made him who he was or helped him along that path are, are, are gone, are dead. He's talking about dealing with that loss and what he has learned along the way. And I think the one thing that I think is really powerful about this record is a theme that the music is the one thing that continues to sustain us all. A number of songs about how music is the one thing that sort of can get you through these really dire moments in your life. And yeah, let's not yeah. let's not kid around. This guy's 71 years old. He's in the last turn, too, you yeah. know, in may, his life. May I use the metaphor? The music, Greg, is the <laughs> river that flows through our life, and it never stops flowing. And you know yes, what? Uh, thank you. Again, he's not going to win any new fans over, but the fans no, who not. do love that sound are, are going to like this record. I, I, you know, personally, I would say... To me, it's the most profound and moving Springsteen record in, in quite a long time. I've been reading two books uh, by Kurt Anderson, the uh, great uh, former editor of Spy, who's become a wonderful cultural critic. You know, and he is increasingly pegging many of the problems of our moment on the nostalgia for a time that never existed. And I think uh, that is crystallizing to me my problems with Springsteen. Springsteen lives in a past that never existed, and he'd like to give us comfort, you're saying, by giving us that. These are not comfortable times. You and I have reviewed several dozen albums this year uh, that could only have been made in 2020 and are making me feel alive and giving me both comfort and resilience. He doesn't do that. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't think that any Springsteen album since The River has really spoken to me. Every record that Springsteen has made has usually had one or two songs on it that you think, you know, they're, they're gems amid other stuff that just kind of throw away or not going to hold up over time. This record, the batting average is a little higher on the number of songs that I think I would listen to uh, down the road. We're going to talk now to Mary Wharton, the director of this fantastic documentary, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. Mary, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you for making this film. Both Greg and I, when we thought, you know, Jimmy Carter, rock and roll, you know, we know Dylan, yeah. But to dive deep for a really well-made film, 
into the connections uh, that Carter had with music in the rock and roll world and also jazz. Music was in this guy's soul. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we were really surprised, in fact, going into this, we had heard about the Dylan stories and the Willie Nelson stories and the Greg Allman and the Allman Brothers stories. I didn't know about it until the producer, Chris Farrell, came to me with this idea for a film. But that was pretty much the basis is of what we decided like, oh, this seems like an interesting story. Let's make a film about that. And then we started digging into the research and finding all this other stuff. Just even, for example, when we spoke to Jimmy Buffett, he came to the film because he's friendly with our writer, Bill Flanagan. And Bill said, oh, you know, I, I think Jimmy Buffett might have some Jimmy Carter stories. And we were like, okay, great. You know, Jimmy Buffett's awesome. Bring him on. And and then he had amazing stories. And then we went and dug into it more and we found film of the two of them together, Jimmy Buffett performing at a Carter campaign rally. And it just, the more we dug, the more kind of layers of the onion got peeled back. And the thing that was most exciting to me was One of the first things that I wrote with Chris in the original treatment was this idea that we hoped that by kind of looking at Jimmy Carter through this music lens, that we would would get at a a sort of interesting portrait of who he was. And, And it turned out that that really did come to pass. Well, and and it's about so much more than music, Mary, because, uh, you know, Carter makes the point that his love of gospel and black blues musicians and the Capricorn recordings, uh, you know, and bands like the Allman Brothers from the South, that he never had the racism that ran through the veins of so many people and still does, sadly. Uh, You know, the film ends with a little snippet of the Staples singers uh, performing in front of the White House. You know, we've had Mavis Staples. Greg is Mavis's biographer. We had Mavis on the show, and she talked about how when they would record at Stax, it was a sundown area, right? And black people who were out after dark could be hurt by the KKK, but not the musicians. You know, even the guys in the hoods knew the musicians and they got a free pass. And Carter talking about race in those terms with such grace about how music brought us all together. I mean, it's a bomb for this time, you know, this period we're living in. It's amazing how much it resonates. And we were first making this film. We started in, in 2018, the beginning of 2018. So it was over two years ago. And even, you know, then it was like, oh, wow, this is still really relevant. All of these things that we're, we're learning in Carter's story all just resonated so strongly. And this year where we are in this period of this very sort of toxic tribalism and an explosion of paying attention to race in America in a different way right now, it just makes you realize how relevant the story continues to be and how ahead of his time Jimmy Carter was and how, you know, it really just comes back to 
a sort of moral courage that he had to yeah. stand up for what was right. And guess what? What was right in 1976 or 1978 is still what is right today. We all can see it, right? I yeah. mean, <laughs> yeah. be a human, well, you know? And that's right. what Jimmy Carter was so good at, being a great human. Yeah, and, and the rarity of that, I think, was, uh, you know, uh, striking, Mary. Uh, you, you know, the, the movie puts it in context. Um, you know, the idea of, like, Elvis coming to the White House to visit Nixon, it was just such a awkward encounter, you know, right. these two worlds never should meet. There were some people who didn't like my being deeply involved with William Nelson and Bob Dylan and disreputable, you know, rock and rollers, but I didn't care about that because I was doing what I really believed. And the response, I think, from the followers of those musicians was much more influential than a few people who thought that being associated with rock and roll and radical people was uh, inappropriate for a president. Politically, it may not have been the smartest move, but for Carter, it certainly worked out well. Why, why do you think he ventured there to make that more overt so that the public knew, hey, I love these guys? Right. I think it just speaks to his bravery. I mean, I think that Carter is very misunderstood as somehow being soft and being a peacenik. You know, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, for, for gosh sakes, you know, yeah. and, and he, he has spent his life waging peace. But he was a Navy man. You know, he increased military spending every single year of his administration. He believed in the power of the American military and the might, and he knew better than anyone, anyone who served in the Army or the U.S. Armed Forces understands the power that that organization holds better than someone who hasn't right and and i think that he was just he was just extraordinarily brave when he's you know at a campaign rally in 1980 and this was kind of shocking to me to look back at something from 1980 and see that the kkk were you know protesting outside a Carter rally. Yeah, they hated him. I say that these people in white sheets do not understand our region and what it's been through. They do not understand what our country stands for. They do not understand that the South and all of America must move forward. Our past is a rich source of inspiration. We've had lessons that we learned with a great deal of pain, but the past is not a place to live. We must go forward in the South, and we will. And they hated him. They hated him because he was anti-racist. He had promoted um, civil rights and women's rights and, and just human rights in general. And he, you know, wasn't afraid to stand up to them. He was pointing his finger in their faces and calling them cowards for hiding behind masks. There's a know? great anecdote in, mm -hmm. in the film. The Secret Service had to pull him away because he was getting in their faces right back at them. Yeah. The Cuckoo's plan was uh, down on me, obviously, and they wanted to disrupt the rally. And so I thought the only way to do it was to confront them directly. We kind of had to walk through this gauntlet of all these guys. And, you know, Carter being Jimmy Carter would stop and jeer back at him every once in a while about what cowards they were. This good man who wanted to try to reverse the tide of history, not only in the South and in America, but within his own party. The guys with the white hoods and the burning uh, crosses did not like that. He could have been 
physically harmed as well as politically harmed. You know, but well, he, and he just he, didn't he care. Makes, he makes the point, uh, talks proudly, of there was not a single bomb dropped or a gunshot in his campaign, which comes off as, as strength. <laughs> we were strong not to take the bait. And, you know, it was a twist of, twist of history, right? If yeah. the attempt to rescue the uh, hostages had succeeded, as the Israeli raid on Antebi did, um, right. he would have been one of the great military geniuses of all time. You know, a sandstorm derailed that. You know, but yeah. he never expresses sadness. He's proud of what he accomplished. And also, he's not uh, superficial. The film opens with him quoting accurately Dylan lyrics. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he knew this stuff. It wasn't about posing. He lived with it. He knew it. He loved it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, people have asked me a number of times about what is it that, um, you know, that uh, made Jimmy Carter connect with music and what and and conversely, what is it about Jimmy Carter that made artists and songwriters connect with him? And I think it boils down to the fact that Jimmy Carter was a truth teller. He, he, he was always truthful. He, he, one of his campaign promises was, um, I'll never tell a lie to the American people. If you ever find me kept telling you a lie, then don't vote for me. That's what he told people mm. when he was running for president. And he told America the truth, even when they didn't want to hear it. You know, sometimes mm. they didn't want to hear the truth because they want to just hear, oh, let's go bomb Iran. And he was telling them, yeah, we need to do something about this energy crisis. And, you know, and they didn't like that, you know. But, you know, there's that great quote about uh, songwriting by, I think it's Harlan Howard. The only thing you need to write a song is three chords in the truth. Yeah. You know, I think that, that Jimmy Carter appreciated the fact-finding and the truthfulness that he saw in in these great songs of the great songwriters of America. He loved Paul Simon. He loved Bob Dylan. You know, he, he loved that music because it showed him a picture of America. You know, he said that, you know, as a, a young man growing up on a farm, he never quite had a good understanding of the plight of the farm worker, the farm laborers, until he heard Maggie's Farm by Bob Dylan. Well, he hands you a nickel, he hands you a dime, he asks you with a grin if you're having a good time, and he finds you every time you slam the door. So he appreciated that this art form brought him closer to a true understanding of the world. And I think that conversely, the artists appreciated that he saw their truth and that he was speaking the truth back to them. I think that's a great point. I, I think the whole idea of the arts consistently being sort of, you know, put on the back burner when it comes to our discussions about political figures or leaders in this country. It's like, oh, that's kind of like kid stuff. It's yeah. not really that important. And Carter sort of moved it front and center. And I'm thinking, like, presidents before or since, who has really been that aligned or that conversant with popular culture and the music of the times as he was? I mean, you could say Barack Obama, 
you know, certainly, you know, the playlists were a very important part of like humanizing him. No, he knew his yeah. and, 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 Oh Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he knew Jamila Woods and, and people like that. You know, but, but compared and, to and you know, Clinton, but, Clinton had the dalliance with, you know, it was kind of baby boomer. You know, Bill Clinton main, main street, playing, it, playing sax with Arsenio Hall and Love and Fleetwood Mac. But it, at, least no. it was, at least, <laughs> no. it, at least no. it was an attempt. I don't think Clinton was being phony about. It. I think his love of music, such as it was, was genuine. <laughs> but Carter, you know, he 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 fully embraced it, and uh, he he was so conversant with it. And I think what a valuable lesson to all future leaders, you would think. But it really hasn't. Know, not it hasn't in. really sunk in. You know, I, we got a lot of people who just do they even listen to music? Do they even care? Or read and, poetry? Yeah. Or, yeah. or really think Book, about yeah, films, books, movies, you know, all, yeah. all that stuff, theater. Uh, that seems to be like, and Carter seems like a sort of a renaissance man, you know? He is a total renaissance man. You know, he is a poet himself. I think that you're absolutely right that the arts have gotten the short shift um, in American culture for a lot of years. And, you know, in spite of the fact that studies show that kids do better in math when they learn music, you know, they're also kind of learning about logic. And it just helps people to become more well-rounded people when we appreciate the arts. And, you know, I think that we definitely wanted to make sure that we had a very well-rounded kind of um, musical palette uh, to work from. But we used the rock and roll title as kind of a shorthand for the rock and roll attitude, you know, that yeah. we really believe that Jimmy Carter was was kind of badass and pretty cool. Well, and sure. a lot and, of people don't know that about him, you know. How did you get Dylan? Uh. Carter <laughs> earlier in the film says, you know, Bob Dylan became one of my best friends. And then yeah. you have Dylan talk. I mean, Dylan... A, Dylan has friends on this planet, and B, he's willing to talk about them? Yes. Well, I have to give full credit to uh, your fellow rock journalist, Bill Flanagan, who was our writer on the film, and he is the one that got us Dylan. Uh, full props to him. Dylan showed up, and we we weren't sure how it was going to go down. You know, we didn't know if it was going to just be, you know, him shooting something on his iPhone and phoning it in, mmm. um, which is, you know, definitely something that's happened in the past. That's but the no, best Scorsese he, got, right? Yeah, you know? he, he came to us and, you know, allowed wow. us to shoot with him. And I was so impressed by the fact that he had kind of really put some thought into it and, and kind of prepared some things to say. The, mm -hmm. the thing that he says at the end of the film about, you know, he quotes a Leonard Skinner song, which is like yeah. mind-blowing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. amazing. Oh, it's impossible to define Jimmy. Uh, think of him as a simple kind of man, like in the Leonard Skinner song. He takes his time, doesn't live too fast. Troubles come, but they will pass. Find a woman and find love. And don't forget there's always someone above. You know, Bob Dylan knowing the words to a Leonard Skinner it's song. True. And then and then talking about Carter, like, you know, he sort of lists off all these things that Carter, he's a he's a poet and he's, he's a, a nuclear engineer, woodworking carpenter. He's also a poet. He's a dirt farmer. If you told me he was a race car driver, I wouldn't even be surprised. It felt 
felt to me like like Dylan had written a song about Jimmy Carter. It was like a poem in a way, <laughs> no, an incantation. Mm-hmm. It and it was so wonderful to me that he had, you know, taken the time to do that and to come, you know, spend a couple hours with us in the middle of a tour, a concert tour. You know, it was a really special opportunity and, and we're so grateful to have him in the film and, and he I think he's pretty cool in it, you know. <laughs> I'll say. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's a, he's a cool man, that's for sure. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Mary Wharton about Jimmy Carter's music-loving side. Then we'll talk with poet Hanif Abdul-Rakib about his new project focused on the music of 1980. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are talking with Mary Wharton, the director of Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President. What struck me is, you know, you mentioned, like, badasses. It's like, all right, the Almond Brothers. I've been around, I've hung around those guys, and it's like being in a biker gang, you know? It's like you're not, <laughs> you don't mess with these guys. And there's Greg Almond, you know, kicking back scotch with, with Jimmy Carter in the governor's mansion when Carter was governor for Georgia. I want to introduce to you my friends and your friends, the ones that are going to help me get elected along with you, the great Almond Brothers. Or Willie yeah. Nelson. Cool, talk about cool guys on the planet. You know, Mr. Weed Smoking Willie. And so he feels comfortable around this guy. Um, totally. And especially the whole idea of, like, musicians mingling with politicians. You know, back then, not necessarily a cool thing for the musicians to be doing. But they no. saw something cool about this guy that they fig- figured they could talk to him like a peer, I guess. Yeah. Various entertainers would come to the White House, and sometimes unannounced. And the president's office didn't know what to do with them so many times they would just call and say Crosby Stills and Nash are are at the front gate and uh, we don't have them scheduled to see the president can you take care of them my office was in the west wing in the basement and they just sort of hung out everybody would come by and meet them and and then finally took them in to see the president what was your sense of why like a Greg Allman or a Willie Nelson were so willing to sort of open up to this one politician versus all the other ones, you know? Well, I think, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right to, to, you know, mention that during this time, you know, you think about coming out of Watergate and, yeah. the, you know, the you have the kind of, there's the establishment world, you know, which Bob Dylan alluded to, like he didn't realize that his songs could possibly have reached into that world. And then there were the younger generation and, you know, never the twain shall meet in a way during that time period. But, you know, Jimmy Carter had a real um, sort of sense of authenticity that he he was totally real. And I think, you know, the Greg Allman story about the fact that it was right around the time of the uh, Democratic National Convention when Greg Allman was facing charges on uh, cocaine possession and being brought up on trial. And everyone in Carter's organization told him that he needed to distance himself from Greg, that this was like kryptonite, you know, political suicide Mm. to be associated with this cocaine doing long haired rock star who, you know, comes from this band of, like you said, like Florida biker gang type, you know, rowdy, raucous, you know, rock and roll 
metal band. And, and Carter was friends with Greg Allman and he refused to back away from him because he was his friend. And yeah. he saw that his friend was going through a tough time and he probably needed help, you know, more than ever in that moment. And I just, again, that speaks to Carter's bravery and his sense of honor and moral courage, you mm-hmm. know, that he stuck by Greg. And, and in fact, on the very first day that he was in the White House, he invited Greg Allman and his then girlfriend Cher to dinner. And they had dinner with him the first night that he spent the night in the White House. And so... there's a very, very funny story. <laughs> Not only did they have dinner uh, in the White House dining room, um, but they were unfamiliar of, with the idea of, of finger washing bowls. And so Cher, I believe it was, sipped from hers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she thought it was a fancy tea, I think. Because there was a flower in it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. We oftentimes sat there with guests who had never had a finger bowl, like Greg and Cher. And uh, she picked up the glass and started drinking it, man. <laughs> had a little gardenia floating in it and a lemon, you know. And we all sat there talking, and when they finished, then all of us washed our hands in the finger bowl and then moved on to the next course. So, Mary, even though uh, we get no sense in the film that Jimmy Carter himself ever inhaled, he was understanding of people who who did try things and became prey to abuse even, right? You know, I mean, yeah. his friendship for Greg was that this is a man who, who needs help right now. And, you know, it turns out Willie Nelson had talked about going up on the roof of the White House and smoking pot with a staffer. But it turns out to have been one of Carter's sons. Yeah. What I love about how Carter handles that in our interview is that he he talks about all that stuff just so nonchalantly, like like yeah. he, he's in on the joke. The kind of humor is definitely not lost on him, but he's also just so, it's no big deal to him. I think that the fact that he refused to judge people based on something that they might have done in the past or, or that might have been illegal at the time, and it goes back again to his sense of Christianity that like, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. And that level of empathy and selflessness is a rare trait in anyone, I think, these days in particular, but in a politician, particularly somebody who is, you know, the leader of the free world, um, it's refreshing to see. This was a man who remains a man who is fascinated with everyone. You know, the truck driver, um, the the young African girl who is going to get her house built for the first time with his home building initiatives. And he'll talk to all of them. You know, the same way he would talk to anybody, right? He was an everyman, every uh, yeah, human absolutely. being. absolutely. He has a deep love of humanity, first of all, and an insatiable curiosity. He's a highly intelligent man. He studied nuclear yeah. physics <laughs> yeah, in, in the yeah, Naval yeah. Academy. Mm. Um, he's written like eight or ten books, um, volumes of poetry that he's had published, I mean, he's, a, as you say, a true Renaissance man, but that intrinsic love of people is kind of, I feel like I've never been a believer of any real organized 
form of religion, but I feel like Jimmy Carter very much embodies Christianity in the best sense of the word. Mm -hmm. That, you know, he just truly loves people. And that's a very rare trait, I think, Mm -hmm. in this day and Mm -hmm. age. Yeah, it's interesting, too, the anecdote in the movie about, you know, when, when Dylan meets Carter for the first time, Dylan pulled him aside and was quizzing him about his Christianity, you know, which yeah. was several years before Dylan's, Dylan's so-called yeah. Christian phase, you know, uh, in, yeah. in recording. So, yeah. you know, who knows? Carter may have had an influence on, <laughs> you know. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve some. We asked him about that, and Carter didn't want to take any credit for it. But, you know, he kind of characterized it as being perhaps a step along the path that Mm -hmm. that Dylan took in investigating his own spirituality and whether that led him to Christianity and has now led him to other places. You know, I, I just thought it was so incredible to learn that, you know, here you have at the time, Carter was the governor of Georgia, but, you know, governor and a rock star having deep philosophical conversations about the meaning of Christianity in your life. That's an unusual situation right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have been talking with director Mary Wharton, whose most recent project, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President, has been our subject for today. Mary, that was very enlightening. Thank you for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much for having me. I love you guys' show, and uh, it's, it's great to be on here. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we are here with Hanif Abdurraqib, the uh, poet, the music critic, the author, uh, and last but not least, the host of Lost Notes podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank y'all. Thank y'all so much for having me. Now, last year you had a book on a tribe called Quest, and this year you have your latest project, the third season of KCRW's Lost Notes podcast. You wrote uh, seven episodes on uh, musicians at critical junctures in 1980, uh, from Stevie Wonder and Minnie Ripperton to Darby Crash of the Germs. Uh, it's quite a range. How did you choose this as your next project? You know, Lost Notes is a kind of rotating host type show and for this one the uh, producers came to me and asked if I wanted to host it and I said yeah and they said that it could be about anything I wanted it to be you know which is so broad that it becomes almost overwhelming (laughs) yeah where do you start (laughs) yeah and there was something I found interesting about the year 1980 is by itself not one of the most interesting years in music but there were a series of conditions that led to a certain type of ambition that sat at the core of music making in 1980. And I wanted to kind of tell those stories and use 1980 as kind of like an endpoint where, for example, if we were to say, you know, Hugh Masekela and Maria Makeba didn't just end up in Lesotho at the end of 1980. There was a series of political violences and political conditions that led to what made that coming home concert really spectacular. Because, you know, as I mentioned in the piece that I wrote for Lost Notes, The magic of the weekend was, of course, the music. And the magic inside of the magic was what happened after the stadium show. There isn't much footage of the music that took place inside of the stadium. 
There were restrictions on what could be recorded and who could record. And on top of this, there were technical problems that prevented any recording from being done. Not to be dismayed, Masakela and his band packed as many people as they could into a small room inside their hotel. I began to think a lot about these stories as how can I tell the stories that surrounded the music being made in 1980 and kind of lean further into this idea I have that no critical revisiting of of music can happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. The history around that music has to be fulfilled as well. Context. Yeah. Context. It's something that Greg and I talk about all the time. We did a classic album dissection once on our show of James Brown live at the Apollo, right? And when you realize that that concert happened smack in the middle of uh, the 10-day standoff with Cuba, the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, the world is ending, right? And that puts a whole other level to, to that brilliant, brilliant performance and wonderful record that maybe you weren't aware of. Yeah, and I, I also think that generally speaking, you know, the contextually, there's so much more interesting happening in 1980 that pushed a lot of artists to take risks that they otherwise might not have been pushed to take. I'm thinking specifically of Grace Jones and Stevie Wonder. You know, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think we get like Compass Point era Grace Jones if not for Disco Demolition Night. Or we maybe get Compass Point era Grace Jones, but it maybe comes later. And Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder kind of returning to himself with Hotter Than July after Secret Life of Plants. All those things felt, the scaffolding around those things felt important to, to dive into. Well, you mentioned Grace Jones. I was fascinated by that episode in particular because I wasn't expecting you to dig into disco demolition, but there it was, a notorious event in Chicago history. The event was shameful, racist, homophobic, and controversial, but it was also seen as a glowing center of the national uprising against disco. By late 1979 and into early 1980, the genre's popularity started to decline. Disco began to be pushed into the shadows of the American musical landscape. The artists, who, for years, had made popular disco records, began to be pressured in other sonic directions. It stood as a perfect example of the American mainstream, co-opting the work, art, and interests of marginalized populations with as much ease as it will dispose of them. Your take on it was uh, Grace Jones, this uh, disco-era artist who transformed herself in that year with a record that sort of changed the course of her career. Do you think she was specifically paying attention to what was going on? Okay, disco's over. They had this stupid event in Chicago where they burned a bunch of disco records. I'm going to change course. Or was, it, was there something else at work there with Grace? Well, I think a thing with Grace Jones that has to be mentioned, too, is that her, her last album i mean her album sales and the interest in her albums had been kind of gradually declining particularly in 1979 you know and so you know muse came out in 1979 and unlike her kind of previous albums in her disco trilogy it just didn't really have a spark to it it didn't have the same amount of club hits on it i I can't say for sure of course but the repercussions of i think disco demolition night people maybe were aware of them, but the disco backlash had kind of been, I mean, y'all know, surely the disco backlash had been kind of accumulating before Disco Demolition. Oh, Disco Demolition comes late in the game, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, like, 
by the time Disco Demolition Night happened, I think for a lot of folks, that was just kind of a confirmation of um, where, you know, the, the mostly white, mostly male fan base was trying to steer the attention away. So I, I do think that by the time Grace Jones reached the end of her disco trilogy of albums, disco demolition night or not, maybe she would have headed in a different direction just because that out, you know, Muse just didn't do very well. And I, I think it has to be said that War Motherette also didn't do massively well, but what War Motherette did was kind of unfurl a landscape upon which nightclubbing could, could exist. And nightclubbing is kind of for a lot of people, the Grace Jones album. And I kind of wanted to, again, context, right? Like none of these things exist in a vacuum and um, and it felt important. And if we have to get more of Warm Leatherette from you, because mm, yeah. it is such a fascinating track mm. and I guarantee many listeners don't know it. So give us the uh, synopsis and the wonderful uh, backstory of Warm Leatherette. Warm Leatherette, like most of the Grace Jones records to that point, uh, consisted of mostly covers. And so when we talk about like reinvention, um, the reinvention of Grace Jones, it's uh, kind of gentle. I mean, it's, you know, Compass Point, All Stars were, were an elite backing band, shifted the sound, but the song itself, Warm Leatherette, is a cover of a Daniel Miller song. You know, Daniel Miller was in a band called The Normal, but mm-hmm. even before the song existed, there's this book, and I don't know if y'all have read it, J.G. Ballard's Crash, I don't know if anyone listening has read oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Crash is this book that is kind of about people who are sexually aroused by staging and participating in car crashes. But Daniel Miller wrote a screenplay, I believe, trying to make the book into a film, but it just didn't work. And so he instead kind of condensed the script into like a three-minute song. See the breaking glass in the underpass. See the breaking glass in the underpass. Warm leatherette. You know, Miller goes on to found Mute Records, yeah, and yeah. Uh, instrumental in the career of Depeche Mode. And normal, the normal was really just Daniel. If you ever met Daniel, he's this big, chubby, lovable guy, kind of like a, a warmer Uncle Fester. And you wonder, how did that music come out of him? <laughs> and then it becomes Grace Jonesified. Yeah, right. Grace Jones is such a good reinterpreter of existing song. Throughout her career, she has been. But I think in Warm Leatherette, you know, it's just gentler. It is as sexy as I think the song is intended to be in its original form. It's like both sexy and nightmarish. And Mm -hmm. I think there's something about Grace Jones's voice in the way that she is able to, from word to word, play with syllables and play with structure and play with emphasis on language that really creates throughout her immense body of covers makes it so that when she reinvents a song you're not straying too far sonically but you are perhaps straying pretty far emotionally it's 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 pretty visceral straying on an emotional standpoint yeah well said When we return, we'll continue our conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking with cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib about his new season of the Lost Notes podcast on the year 1980. So, Hanif, of the records you choose to dig deep into in this uh, new third series of Lost Notes, all from 1980, uh, it seems to me they all represent uh, sounds or genres at a key turning point, but artists also who are at a turning point or turning points in their uh, personal lives. Yeah, you know, I wanted to um, also spend time in this series thinking through loss and legacy and how not just bands rebuild their sounds, but how people rebuild themselves, how people rebuild out of grief or how people build themselves towards a desired infamy. If I'm thinking about someone like Darby Crash, who was very intentional about becoming infamous and then it didn't happen, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking about the story of New Order on its own is interesting, but I think for me honing in on the first New Order single and how it was a Joy Division song that Ian Curtis mumbled the lyrics to and they had to do all this audio work to get the lyrics close to what the right lyrics were. That's fascinating to me. It's for me thinking through how does anyone rebuild after immense tragedy? Or in the case of Darby Crash, what does one do when your quest for infamy is kind of taken away from you and you're not alive to see it happen. Well, and then why the thought to pair in that episode uh, John Lennon and Darby Crash? Well, because, of course, through no fault of John Lennon's, John Lennon is the character who uh, is responsible for for Darby Crash not being infamous. You know, Darby Crash died December 7th, 1980, and, and John Lennon was murdered the next night. You know, the thing that was so incredible to me about working on that episode was that it is just so hard to find news stories about Darby Crash's death. It's so hard to find. Mm -hmm. And I get that Darby Crash is not John Lennon. He is um, vital to a hardcore punk scene that was burgeoning at the time. But still, you know, it's hard to find anything about his death. And that is the exact opposite of what he desired. You know, he, he has that quote about like how he wanted a statue of himself and he wanted to be all in the papers. He wanted to be, there's that, in the decline of Western civilization, there's that shot of him, and in the background is, is the paper about Sid Vicious, you know, with Sid Vicious yeah. on the cover. He wanted that, you know, he wanted the Sid Vicious story. It was fascinating to me that in working on this, I just, you cannot, there's just hard to find anything, any kind of coverage on his death, which is, I hesitate to say heartbreaking, but there is something about it that is a bit painful to me. You've said an uninterrogated past in music isn't worth the nostalgia. So I was wondering if you could unpack that for us, because yes, so much of music is nostalgia. But what are you talking about, that relationship between uh, loving history, because you clearly do, and many of the essays you've written uh, for print and the new ones for the podcast are about history, but you don't want to live in the past at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think, not to immediately circle back to my emo roots, but um, I think if I were to leave my investment in that music or any music, but let's focus on that. If I were to leave my investment in that music uninterrogated and just say, well, it made me feel good 
at the time, I think there would be a guilt on the back of that, you know, where it's like, I can't listen to this. And now I feel bad about who I was then and all this stuff. But I think when I interrogate it, I really get to the heart of something that feels like generosity. What I'm saying is I'm thankful that I loved this music at the time where I needed it because it allowed me to build a bridge elsewhere. And now I don't need it as much as I did. Hmm. That kind of interrogation is not for me making peace with listening to some of the stuff I listen to and being and giving it the thumbs up or whatever. It's saying at the time I needed it and I needed it more than I needed to interrogate my politics around it. And now I no longer am in a position where I need to do that. So I can more healthily interrogate my, my politics around it without tearing down who I was then and who I became. I was thinking about this recently because I was talking to a friend about a band that we had collectively brand new. We stopped listening to brand new a while back whenever all the stuff jumped off, you know, the allegations around Jesse Lacey. And the thing that, that often bothers me is that I don't necessarily think abstaining from listening to or consuming something is something to be self-righteous about. And I think it's often painted that way, where it's like, well, I stopped listening to this and I'm, I'm self-righteous about it. For some people, it's briefly a point of real agony. It is a point that requires real work. You know, I just did a thing with the sports writer Jessica Luther and Kavitha Davidson, and Jessica Luther was talking about how when she decided to stop watching football, it was actually a point of pain for her because she could no longer connect with, like, the people in her life. It removed the point of connection, but she knew she had to do it. When I talk about like abstaining from things or like doing reflective work and then choosing to abstain from music particularly, it's not because I'm trying to pat myself on the back. It's, it's, it's hard work. And I think it is hard work that allows for me to better assess not only who I was, but who I want to be. Sometimes it's not throwing a whole band away. Sometimes it's just like, I can't listen to that album anymore. Sometimes it's like, I got to skip over yeah. this song or sometimes it's, you know, but I can't ask a country to interrogate its history and interrogate itself if I'm not willing to do that in my own personal assessment. We've been talking with poet and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib about his new seven-part series on 1980 for the Lost Notes podcast. Hanif, thanks for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, y'all. Greg, what do we have on our show next week? Next week, Jim, we are about to unearth another round of buried treasures, music under the mainstream radar that we think you need to know about. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you get such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from across the country via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our supporters on Patreon. The show was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne. 